recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C., 1112, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are Steps to Nomagayudet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station. And a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guestbook Podcast. Guestbook Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We have a very, very special guest here at the end right now. One of the original four founding members of Forum 40. The illustrious Mr. Ashley Simpson. How's it going, man? It's going great. I'm loving this track. What are we listening to? This is uh, Wale Ambition. Wale, as you know, is from D.C. and Yes, yes, yes. Shout out to DMV. Yes, sir. Silver Spring, Maryland. I see you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's this this kind of track kind of speaks to me. Volumes. Yes. It's great because it's like that's all that drives me, no matter what I'm doing, and uh, I love it. Yeah. So this is my hype song. <laughs> you about to close that deal? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, love you, me for my ambition. <laughs> you all will definitely see over the course of this episode the ambition that he has uh, exhibited all throughout his life. Now, you are originally from Guyana. When did you move from Guyana to the States? So it was um, 1982. I think it was hot. I think it might have been like May of 1982. And um, flew into... Uh, Miami International Airport from Georgetown, Guyana. Okay. First time on a plane. How old were you at this time? I was, uh, how old was I? I was, 19, I was 11. I was 11 years old. And my dad told me, and he said, son, he said, there's, you can be anything you want. You can do anything you want in the U.S. There's one thing you cannot do. What's that? Be president of the United States. He said, but you can do anything you want to do. And you know what? I'm okay with not being president of the United States. Ah, <laughs> because you were born outside of the states. Exactly. Got yeah. you. Got you. Got you. You said that's your only limitation. Yeah. So it ties back to my track ambition. ambition. There you go. Yeah. Georgetown is the capital of Guyana. Correct? It is. Yeah. It is a capital. My, uh, my both of my parents grew up in Georgetown, and uh, family from Georgetown. And there's family on the other side of the river, the Esquibo River. That uh, both my mom and dad's parents uh, uh, are from. What is the official language of Guyana? English. It was actually it was actually a former British colony. So I think um, the the Dutch had it at one point, and you know the Brits they come in and take over everything. So they <laughs> they, they beat the Dutch out. Um, but it sits you know the northern coast of uh, South America. Mm-hmm. It is the only country that speaks English. Everyone else speaks like Spanish, Portuguese, mm-hmm. uh, Dutch, or French. Like you have French Guyana mm-hmm. and Suriname, which is Dutch, mm-hmm. and you have Guyana, which is British, former British Guyana. Mm-hmm. And the name Guyana means "land of many waters." Oh. And if you ever see it on a map, you could see there's one big river that kind of divides the country mm-hmm. that runs north to south, mm-hmm. and then there are like these tributaries that go off to either side of it. So it's 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 really cool. It's a really really cool place. I did see a lot of um, like uh, eco tourism going on there now, which is kind of neat. Um, but it's if you if you're doing going to do eco tourism there, just be prepared that you know it won't be. I think people call it uh, glamping or some nonsense like that. No, like you're glamorous ready. camping. I'm like, yeah, there ain't, ain't nothing glamorous about this because you're out there and you might have a generator for power. Oh wow, and yeah, it looks like the majority of the countries. From Google Maps, green. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a good like, thing. Yeah, which, which is good. Yeah, <laughs> is there any part of the Amazon that's inside of Guyana? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I think it all kind of you know, I mean, all the all the waters kind of flow together as you as you head further south. But I don't think any part of Guyana is is, is classified as the Amazon itself. Okay, because uh, it is you know you got a little bit of Brazil and, and most of Venezuela on the southern border. Yeah, 
in those first years, what were some of the cultural differences that stood out to you between your life in Guyana versus what you were seeing in America? Well, you notice I don't really have an accent. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually true. So there was a lot of simulation with that. There was a lot of, uh, uh, where are you from? Like, Unga Boonga, you know, you know, kids, we can be real cruel in middle school, high school. So your accent uh, was like really pronounced. My, my accent was really pronounced. And, and um, you know, I learned how to um, enunciate and, you know, before I came here, but it was it was something that I was it was deliber- deliberate for me in terms of it wasn't osmosis. It like wasn't you, osmosis. You really yeah. tried, yeah. yeah, to assimilate, yeah. And then you know, probably one of the most vivid memories I had. I remember my first day. I was asked a question in math class, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I stood up to answer the question, and everyone looked around like, "What the hell is this kid doing with the nappy hair?" <laughs> and I was like. And my dad used to cut my hair back then, which is really bad, really, really bad. You never wanted your parents to cut your hair. It's like, jeez. Hey, it saved money, though. It saved money, but it looked like, you know, someone just basically took some big scissors, <laughs> like, you know, shears for sh- uh, for uh, for hedges and just went to my hair. He, he, he didn't cut your hair for style. He cut it for function. It, there you go. <laughs> um, but, to you know, the big difference was getting up and answer answering a question in class, and others did not do that. So that was that was kind of like new to me because there was a level of respect you afforded the teacher, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably um, the biggest takeaway is that there's a level of respect that is afforded to certain authority. And I was always told, you know, speak when you're spoken to, answer when you're called, respect your elders. And that kind of that was kind of my mantra growing mm-hmm. up. It was reinforced with my parents. It was reinforced with my grandparents. It was reinforced in our culture. Um, and here in the U.S., it was like, you know, you could talk back. And I was like, you know, I ain't talking back to anyone. And respect for elders yeah. was like ingrained. Yeah, very much so. I don't even think we mentioned, um, when you came to the States, mm-hmm. where did you move to? Chillum Heights, Maryland. Shout so, to PG. PG County. <laughs> first of all, it was the first time I ever lived in an apartment. Okay. Did not know what an apartment was. Hmm. So we show up in Chillum Heights, Maryland, and I'm like, what is this, Daddy? <laughs> and he's like, this is where we're living. I said, okay. I said, where's the house? Because <laughs> I'm looking for, I'm coming from a house. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm looking for a house. And he's like, no, this is where we're staying. Um, and I was like, okay, I guess this is temporary. That was what I was thinking in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, little did I know that uh, it would be a place where um, I would go to middle school, I'd call my residence, and uh, I think maybe the first year of high school, and then we moved to, um, you know, Langley Park, um, not far from here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was, uh, Chillum Heights, that was a hood. Big part of your life, not only uh, time spent there, but also its uh, impact upon your life uh, thereafter is the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. You started, though, in high school. Doing an ROTC program, correct? I did, yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. So, uh, you know, I think on the ROTC program, it did a couple things for me. The ability to persuade people, the willingness to stand in front of people and, you know, lead, if you will. The responsibility that came with that, which wasn't a whole lot. I mean, high school, so it's it's not going to tell me, like, okay, now you've got to go, you know, fight a war. But a responsibility of, okay, here is... Here is a uh, a dummy weapon, right? That you're gonna a rifle you're gonna use, and you're gonna you know march up and down the sidewalk with it. Make sure people aren't like throwing it on the ground or hitting each other with it. Make sure you know there's 50 of them and 50 come back. I mean, there's little things like that. It builds, it builds a sense of you know responsibility of okay, can we trust you with you know the responsibility of here are 50 things, mm-hmm. and you need to bring it back. And they need to be locked up after they're put back into a room. Mm-hmm. It's little things like that. And so I don't mind being held accountable for stuff. Gotcha. Did you know that you wanted to go in the Marine Corps immediately after high school during ROTC? Did you know before then? It was during. Um, so it was probably my junior year. And in my junior year, um, they, got one, they got an instructor that was a retired Marine Corps gunnery sergeant. And you would have thought that, you know, I had seen God because it was like he was tall. He was a brother. He had all these ribbons on his chest. You know, he walked cocky and confident and he 
you know, he was very direct and very like matter of fact. And I was like, I want to be a Marine. And anything that the Marine Corps touched was always about perfection. And at that time, you know, you can say their slogan was, you know, we're looking for a few good men. And that was it. And it was gritty. It was like, you know, a brotherhood. It was all about, we want to be, you know, we're looking for a few good men. And I'm like, I want to be one of those guys. Everything about them, from the uniforms to the way they walk, you know, their history, all that stuff. And I was like, it's like a kid, you know, uh, meeting their sports star Mm -hmm. for the first time. And they happened to be my end-all, be-all. They encapsulated everything that I wanted. Um, or I saw myself while you were in school. Mm-hmm. Was there anything you did over and above just the general ROTC program that prepared you mm-hmm. to join the Marine Corps <clears throat> once you graduated high school? No, there there wasn't. It was it was um, it was pretty general in terms of you know it was it was almost like another class, right? Because you, you it's it's elective, and you go you, know, you you got to go and you get graded on you know tests and all this other stuff um did it prepare me yeah it gave me some insight mm-hmm. but it certainly never prepared me for marine corps boot camp tell me about that oh. so that was 13 weeks of um 13 weeks of hell but one of the things that you know in our pre-talk that i mentioned is you know i learned the difference between physical strength and mental strength and when I was in the Marine Corps, when I joined the Marine Corps, I was 5'11", 145 pounds. Um, I'm 5'11", 200 pounds today. Mm-hmm. So much, much, very different yeah. size. Um, and he's fit. And <laughs> he's fit. That's my, I guess, I shout out to my trainer for that. Um, the, uh, so I always grew up, so, you know, I watched guys play, you know, sports on TV. I watched, you know, guys play sports in high school. Um, and they're all sort of big, you know, athletic and all this other stuff. And I watched those same sized individuals crumble going through a 13 week week program in the Marine Corps, 13 week boot camp. And some of them washed out. Mm. And here I am. Like didn't make it through. Didn't make it through. Wow. Did not make it through. And I'm thinking these guys can do a thousand pull-ups, a thousand sit-ups. You know, they can run a mile in like, you know, three minutes and all this other stuff. And I'm going, how the heck am I doing this? And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, an athlete. I've never been like a, uh, you know, an athlete that played JV sports. I'll play some sports, but I won't, you know, I was never someone that went out for a team. Mm-hmm. And that taught me um, the difference between mental toughness and physical toughness and i valued mental toughness more than the physical stuff because you know throughout life you learn that you know it's not how big you are but how can you go through um some mm-hmm. and you go through some and still come out on the other side yeah um or do you fold your tent and then you know call it a day yeah Look, the um, one of the things that was often said is like mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter, mm-hmm. right? And I know that my my body has given out before my brain gave up. Oh yeah, and I've been through that. Oh yeah, um, and I've <clears throat> I've been through that in the Marine Corps, and I've said to myself, and every now and then I have to remind myself, if you can go through that, you can go through this. Yeah. All right. And shout to the Marine Corps <laughs> Marathon. Oh, yeah. Anybody who's run a marathon, they yeah. know at some point you're going to hit the wall. Yes. And that's, yeah. you know, it could be mile 18. It could be mile 21. It could be mile 25. Yeah. But you're going to hit that wall. And at that point, you realize your body is just like done. Done. Yeah. But the question is, can you continue pushing with your mind? Right. Just to get you through that finish right. line. Right. And I refuse to give up when it got hard. I refuse to give up when it got hard. It's that ambition. They're going to love me for my ambition. <laughs> <laughs> so it's safe to say that you loved being a Marine. I did. Um, it will go with, down with me on my, you know, when I die. I will, I, like people say I was in the Army. I was in the Navy. 
I was in the Air Force. But anyone that served in the Marine Corps will always say, I am a Marine. And I and I'll be with them until they die. It'll be on their on their uh on their uh, gravestone. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Simplify. Simplify. <laughs> For those that don't know, please explain Simplify. So Semper Fidelis means always faithful. Uh, to God, country, and core. Um, that's those sort of three. So anytime you see the our emblem is the eagle, globe, and anchor, mm-hmm. and we cover everything. So air, land, and sea. There you uh, go. So that's we. That's why we're Marines, not just soldiers, <laughs> 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 not just sailors, not just Air Force. We're everything. Yep. Yeah, we're everything. Yep. It's the embodiment of you know who you know who I identify as. I can I can do. It's like crazy. Like I was talking to someone um, recently, and and. Uh, um, both of us are veterans, and actually, was, actually, three of us are veterans, and there were some, you know, non-veterans, veterans around. And he said, one thing about love, I love about Marines is like, there's nothing they don't think they can't do. Yeah, <laughs> it's like we want to, they can do everything, and even if they don't know how to do it, they'll figure out how to do it. Yeah, I it, love that. It was kind of like what we were talking about in our pre-talk. You were saying that you know that you can go anywhere in the world, specifically if you're with the guys that are in your unit. Mm-hmm. First off, you've been trained solo dolo right. to be able to handle yourself right. hand-to-hand physically. If you need to go somewhere long distance or whatever, you can handle that. Should anything pop off in a room with someone, yeah, you know that you can handle yourself. And you have a unit of guys behind you right. that have also been trained to handle themselves. Right. So together, right. Right. What's, what's the problem? Let's, the let's, problem? let's, let's handle this. this. Let's, let's do this. You know, that that's actually, um, you know, that's very true, of course. Uh, but one of the other things that we've learned is, that, you know, um, the Marine Corps, we never retreat. But we will fight in the opposite direction. That's how we define it. It's like, you know what? Let's go fight in the opposite direction. Because you got to know when you can, you know, when you're, you're, you're up against odds that aren't working for you. It's like, you know what? Yeah. Let's fight in the opposite direction because, you, know, uh, you know, tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow's another day. I like that a lot. Yeah. So real quick, you were in the Marine Corps four years? Yeah. Uh, where were the places you were stationed? So the first place they sent me to um, was uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, of all places. And the reason they sent me down there is we have um, we have a uh, secured uh, listening post for the Southern Hemisphere. So we could listen to anything that happens south of the equator. Um, and so I was part of their security forces down there. Okay. Uh, spent two years there, came back to North Carolina. I actually went to North Carolina for the first time. And from North Carolina, I did, you know, Southern California, uh, Okinawa, Japan, and Seoul, South Korea. All right. So you left the Marine Corps. Yeah. And you took advantage of that awesome GI Bill. Paid for a lot of stuff. <laughs> Paid for a lot of stuff. Yeah. And salute the troops. Every single one of them yeah. that goes and serves this country should have their education paid for wherever they want to go. I agree. Where'd you go? <laughs> I went to University of Maryland College Park. Shout out to PG uh, again. Yes, sir. So I didn't stay far from, uh, you know, I didn't you know go far from home um, after I got back um, and even far from my high school because my high school is probably yeah, a probably mile or two. Yeah, yeah, probably a mile or two away from, uh, from College Park. What was your major? Poli sci and psychology. Yeah. What were you looking to do upon graduating, or what were you looking to use that degree to ultimately do when you started school? So, I wanted to go back into the Marine Corps as an officer, and um, that was my that was my thing. Or I also wanted, you know, I was interested in politics. I always loved politics. Very big on like you know current events, what was going on, and. Um, you know, all that all changed. Like my soft after the end of my sophomore year, I needed more money, mm-hmm. so you know I got a part time job, and um, that helped pay for you know expenses that outside of you know school stuff. So that was actually kind of nice. And what was that part time job? Oh wow, that's when I got into real estate. Believe it or not, but funny story, I did not know that I was working for a real estate company. I applied for a job as an administrative assistant. With a, at what's known today as Jones Lang LaSalle. It was LaSalle Partners back then. And I was like, LaSalle Partners. Partners mean 
more than one person. So this must be a law firm. It's got to be a law firm. That's sound deductive reasoning. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Even though it's incorrect. I was it's, I it's was sound. in college at that point, so of course my you know yeah, my my logic made say uh, made sense to me at that point. Yeah. And this is um, pre-internet, right? This was pre-internet. So, so it's not like he'd go on Google no. and check that out. No, nah, there was no there was no there was <laughs> Yeah. There's there like, no opening no opening no web browser yeah, trying he to literally had to ask somebody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like and I go and I'm like, okay. I got the job, which was great. So that was a lot of like answering the phone with you know tenant service calls, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but I loved it. And it gave me a great insight into um, that world that yeah. isn't publicized, especially during that time. No, you know, much less for an African American. Very much so, because um, real estate uh, back then wasn't really institutionalized, meaning it wasn't a Wall Street kind of thing. It was yeah, family, mm-hmm. local, and if your daddy wasn't doing it, you didn't know about it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. if you want an insight onto the evolution of real estate over the past few decades Mm -hmm. listen to episode 55 with monty bessex yeah so how long were you at jll i was at jll for about a year oh yeah so maybe 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 18 months but definitely definitely a good solid year i'm gonna keep repeating this word as we proceed through his real estate career (laughs) ambition (laughs) where'd you go from there i went to uh jbg um and everyone knows today jbg but they went through a couple iterations so I joined JBG as in accounts payable. I was doing everything, you know, doing accounts payable was like everything related to paying invoices for contractors that did work on the property and, you know, stamping it, putting it into MRI, you know, which is a software system that, you know, tracks and creates a general ledger and, you know, all these things. And I loved it. Yeah. Not for long though, because I I was like, we ain't gonna do this for long, Ashley. <laughs> and I'm talking to myself in the third person, like, we're gonna we're gonna get up this ladder. <laughs> but it's great though because you really got to see behind the scenes of how the sausage is paid. <laughs> yeah, how the sausage is paid for sure. Yeah, and I I probably stayed in that role maybe a year, and I applied for a job actually at another within JBG, but at another property. This was out in um, Merrifield, Virginia. Okay. And I was there, I think I got there as an assistant building manager. I became a building manager. Then I I left there maybe, yeah, I left there and came back to uh, Maryland as an assistant property manager. Okay. And then a property manager. So all that within the span of six years. Okay. So and that's how long you were at JBG? That's how long I was at JBG. Okay. Um, and then when I left there, I had a staff of like 13 people and a million square feet. Um, ambitions. Yeah, I was not. I was like, we're gonna make some money. I'm making some money with doing this. So you left JBG. Where'd you go from there? I went to um, Grosvenor. It's a UK-based firm. It's actually the Duke of Westminster. And oh wow, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know they uh, they go back to uh, days of William the Conqueror and like three digit years. Yeah, three digit years. It, their 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 fam- family history is like older than you know the u.s formation if you will yeah so they're, um, they're an ivy league family they're definitely an ivy league family <laughs> joining grosvenor was probably uh you know a great pivot point in my career uh, because i always wanted to figure out how did they make decisions to buy buildings invest in buildings all those things so i got an opportunity to do it here at grosvenor or there at grosvenor when you started at grosvenor mm-hmm. what was the position that you were hired for i was hired as an asset manager which is an evolution of your know, property manager so instead of you know so for those, those that don't know what's the difference between a property manager and an asset manager sure so a property manager is really worried about day-to-day operations right so they make sure that the building will open on time the heating and cooling works um their staff to take care of it the building is clean the rents are collected the bills are paid day-to-day operations. day-to-day operations and then the you know an asset manager is really responsible for creating value so they're more worried about, you know, over time, how does that, how does the income on the property change? How can I secure it better? Um, how can I get more rent out of that, uh, that tenant that occupies space? And so that's their real charge as an asset manager. So those are the differences between the two. One's operationally based and one is investment based. Now, JBG, they were bringing yeah. in outside money. Right. And saying, hey, we're going to put some of our money into this too. Mm-hmm. 
but our job mainly is to use this big pool of money right and invest it in real estate and make everybody money right grosvenor on the other hand mm. is more so a family business or family money business right so in essence i mean they may bring in outside investors and stuff like that but right. for the most part their their purpose is to say hey we have this big pot of money yep that the family has don't f it up right it's basically investing for the, for the longevity of the family. So, yeah. you know, I think they're on to their sixth or seventh Duke. And, you know, yeah, maybe more than that. But in any event, the family is all about here's the money. We're investing it for the Duke, his brother, his brother's kids. Um, you know, and, you know, it goes down the line. So anyone that is, a you know, has a last name Grosvenor, gets a check. They get an annuity mm-hmm. just for being in the family, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that you know, that's that's how it works. How long were you an asset manager at Grosvenor? A year. I didn't particularly like it. <laughs> Is it too slow? I don't like repetitive things. Ah. I don't like rep- I don't like you know monthly record reporting, quarterly reporting. Those kinds of things mm-hmm. bore me. They bore me. So where'd you go to after a year? So I transitioned into doing uh, underwriting for a- acquisition. So something a little more dynamic, something a little more creative. Um, ambition. Ambition, yeah. I, was like, <laughs> I know, right? I, keep, I, keep, I, I hear a theme going on here. It's like a year he changed into this, a year he changed into that. And that was, was kind of like my thing. Okay. Um, but it, it, what it did is it gave me better access to understanding how an investment is put together like what are the what are the legs on the stool you know how many legs does the stool have is it a four-legged stool mm-hmm. three-legged stool um and, and beyond the numbers it. too and beyond the numbers like we're, we're talking about so there's numbers with respect to just how an asset's performing yeah then there's numbers with respect to the people that are uh buying and or selling mm-hmm. whether it's uh their uh their financial health yeah. from a balance sheet standpoint or with respect to um, the returns that they are looking to get on right. a specific investment. Yeah. Even outside all those numbers, mm-hmm. there are other considerations. Yep. And from an acquisition standpoint, you really have to understand that. Yeah. The thing I love about acquisitions is it's a creative process. And um, you know, within acquisitions, you get... Um, Creativity through buying an existing building or creating something that isn't there. So you might buy the dirt and create something that isn't there today. And that's what I love. Mm-hmm. And so as much as numbers are involved, there's so much more in terms of like, what if let's steal an idea from like someone goes to, let's say, the Netherlands or someone goes to you know Italy and they're like, you know, they go to Africa and they're like, wait a minute. I saw this work in this neighborhood and I think we can do it with these kinds of apartments here, this kind of streetscape, this kind of lighting, this kind of, you know, congregation of common space. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, how much is that going to cost? Well, we'll figure that out in a little bit. But first of all, can we even do it based on, you know, limitations on zoning and yeah. land sites and all that kind of stuff? And so I like that part of um, acquisitions. So it's very different from, for me at least, from asset management where there's a regiment to what you do. Yeah. Look, as much as I love property management or didn't like it, all that experience to where it brought me to where I am today, and yeah. I can I can sew those pe- those patches together to create a nice tapestry of here's how I get to invest invest here's how we can create something. Um, and we, I take people from those different disciplines and get their ideas and put it all together and create something beautiful. So it's, it's, it is, um, it, you know, acquisition is at the top of the food chain, but it doesn't work, you know, exclusive of everybody else. Yeah. You have to really understand how all those other pieces work together. Yeah. And your path to getting to where you started doing acquisitions at Grosvenor really served to train you very well you know and one thank you and one of the things that is important to recognize there is that undergrad did not prepare me for that yeah and so you really you really had to learn from the ground up 
And so everything that you do, everything you learn, you deconstruct what someone else may have done or you have to create it on your own. And that, I try to bring those perspectives through from my experience to what I do today um, on the acquisition side. And I think that's that's what's made me you know, fairly successful. <laughs> fairly successful. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so real quick, you were at Grosvenor yeah. for a total of six years, yep. but spent the majority of your time doing acquisitions. Correct, yeah. And then you left there yes. to the company that you have been with now for about 12 years yeah what yeah, company yeah. is Twice that as long met life okay and you do acquisitions. i do acquisitions there so uh, i cover everything from pennsylvania to maine and look i didn't know insurance companies had any interest in real estate I'm like why is an insurance company looking for head of acquisitions in in the mid-atlantic and i'm like oh i guess they do need real estate because like anybody else's portfolio you've got stocks bonds cash and you got real estate hard assets mm-hmm so um, got that job, grew the platform here, and probably my biggest, um, probably the crown jewel in my career here. Lytech. <laughs> no, man, no. <laughs> no, it was like buying mm-hmm. uh, Constitution Center okay. in We're, Southwest. Okay. Um, South Maryland Avenue, right? Yeah. Um, so that one is uh one is one on one constitution. That was that's still the largest acquisition in history of DC. Really? At seven hundred thirty million dollars. Um that was two thousand twelve. It took me a year to pull that deal together. Ooh. Um I learned so much about myself. Um one thing I can remember is my associate Younger guy, CFA, CPA guy. Uh, he came to me. I had already structured um, a deal with um, someone that was going to help us on the on the transaction, and he came back and restructured it, and he made it simpler. And my ego was about to say, "No, actually, you're right. No, you're going to do it my way." And then I pushed that thing up to the side and I said you know what Terrence go do it and he was right and that was like one of the things I learned about myself it's like you've got to if you're going to be in a leadership role you got to let you got to move stuff yeah, sometimes aside you got to get out the way yeah and it was like I have a ton of respect for that guy and if I were to start my own company I'd probably consider yeah, him as one of the people I would work with yeah no doubt yeah. Uh, one last thing before we get to the seven questions oh wow it's that time yeah I know right <laughs> So we've been talking about JBG and Grosvenor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still, though, both of those companies are what, uh, from a real estate developer standpoint, would be called general partners mm-hmm. or GP. Yeah. Those are the guys that, like I said before, when it comes to the equity that goes into a specific deal that happens, they're the guy that probably puts in a small amount, uh, maybe 10% of the total amount of money needed. And then they get money from, from other else. people yeah. it's probably a bit higher for Grosvenor because they're a family yeah. Yeah, firm um, but the people that come in mm-hmm. and give the money mm-hmm. those people are called LPs or limited partners or the, yeah the guys that give a line share <laughs> yeah they give the line share of the money so uh, I guess a real simplified way of looking at it is if there's two groups of people that contribute money to the deal one person is given the control. Mm-hmm. That would be the general partner. Right. Uh, they put in a small amount of money. Right. Put in a lot of the effort. Right. And if they meet those targets, they get paid an outsized amount. Correct. The limited partner is the person who contributes the line share of the money. Right. They typically ba- get paid first. Right. Uh, but they, to a degree, relinquish control yes. of the execution of this real estate investment Correct. to the general partner. Correct. So when you transitioned from Grosvenor to MetLife, right. you went from a GP firm right. to an LP firm. Right. What were some of the major differences that you saw between your experiences prior and how a general partner looks at a real estate deal versus how a limited partner looks at a real estate deal? So yeah, a general partner, in my view, looks at... Um you know, a deal and they're usually trying to figure out um, how much money they can make. 
right? How much, what little they can put in, how much money they can make. Right? <laughs> uh, as, an, as a limited partner, I'm looking at how much money they're putting in, how much money they're making. Right? And then I always ask myself, well, are they getting rewarded appropriately or outsized mm-hmm. reward mm-hmm. for what they're doing? And that's, as an LP, that's my first charge is to figure out, okay, is the 20 million, 5 million, 2 million they're earning after they invested a million or 10 million, um, is that an appropriate reward for the risk that uh, yeah we're undertaking? And so that's, that's probably the biggest difference because if every time you invest a dollar, let's say an investment costs a dollar, and me as a limited partner put in 90 cents, and the general partner puts in 10 cents, and then you know, do I give up all my decision making or do I give some of my decision making? So you have to balance that, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, most people say, well, 90 cents, I want every decision made. Mm-hmm. But you're not hiring someone so that you can be there every day to make every decision. Exactly. <laughs> right? So you've got to relinquish, as you mm-hmm. said, some control. That, yeah. That's appropriate. That's appropriate. I'll leave you with this on that. I think the... So one of the things that I do when I negotiate against others, I really try to figure out what's important to them. And um, within that, create what I call confidence-building measures, right? So if I tell you I'm going to call you tomorrow at 9.30, I will call you tomorrow at 9.30. And if I tell you that that day, I'll call you the next day at 10 a.m., I'll call you at 10 a.m. So all I'm doing right now is creating that pattern of if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And so when it comes time for me to ask for something tough, and I'm telling you this is why I need it, I'm not saying you're going to give it to me right away, but you're going to at least have in the back of your head that this guy is kind of credible. Mm-hmm. The man of his word. Yes. And that's the only thing I have. That's the only thing I have is my word. You ready for seven questions? Oh man, I am. I was like, uh oh, it's that time already. All right. All right. What's it called, y'all? It's the questions. It's the questions. It's the questions. It's the questions. Yeah. The questions. Question number one. Yes, sir. What is the book that you at the library at? You know, it's it's actually um you know, a book that uh someone recently gave me. And I didn't I don't think she realized what she did when she gave that to me because it was it was such a good book. Um, it's called uh, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It by Chris Voss. And Chris Voss is a former FBI hostage negotiator. And the book isn't you read it, you put it back, and you're done with it. It's almost as if it's a textbook on negotiation. And the reason I like the book is because... Um, he gives examples of how he applied what he learned in the field with the FBI. He's also a school. Uh, he's also a professor in, uh, I think, USC, and he also talks about how he teaches that class to business professionals, how they use what he's taught them in real-world examples where you and I could, you know, um, can appreciate, and. He gives this guidance as to so you can recognize that this isn't some esoteric nonsense. It's actually work that you can do on your own. And I've actually used it in my day to day. Like one example is he's talk, he talked about how to say no to a to a um, to a hostage taker, and saying no to someone is really kind of like a real red sign, like a red light. And so an example of saying no is well, how do I do that? Walk me through how do I do that? Or restating what they're asking. Because sometimes when you restate what someone asks, they then it then sort of triggers in their brain, wait a minute, am I really asking this person what I think? This person is repeating to me that I asked? And you're like, yeah, you did. <laughs> right? There is an episode of Parks and Rec yeah. where Ron Swanson does that exact same thing. <laughs> It is the funniest thing. All he does is repeat what the guy said back to him. Yeah. But he says it in an even tone. Yes. That comes off yeah. with like a hint of sarcasm. Yeah. And so the other guy's like, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Question number two. Podcast yeah. to subscribe. 
I don't know if it's really a podcast, but one of the things that I I recently started listening to is um, Calm, C-A-L-M. It's a meditation app. And the reason I like it is every day you when you wake up in the morning you can do a, you know a, like a 10 minute meditation and one of the things i like about it is um let me put it this way it helps you move from the noise in your head and how to put the noise on a shelf and be able to understand each part of that um, noise that you have on the shelf and recognizing that meditation isn't about you know your like total silence or total you know uh, removal of yourself from the real world, it's recognizing how to live in the real world today with all the noise going on around you. And there was one episode I just listened to where um, the narrator um, wanted to meditate. She was somewhere where it was really noisy. I think there was construction and whatever else was going on. And she said she found silence in the gaps between the noise. So when a jackhammer was going, that was the noise. The moment it stopped, that was the piece she was looking for. And she used that gap to meditate. Hmm. So it's almost like, I don't know if this is exactly the way she looked at it, but... Most people say, okay, you take the silence mm. and then a noise happens here, a noise happens here. That's the thing that you focus on. Yeah. But she flipped it. Yeah. The thing that she focused on were the intermittent silences. Yes. And she just assumed that the bass was noise. Exactly. Yeah. Because you, you think about it in the real world, like you're, you're, you got to commute, you're thinking about the traffic, you're thinking about all this other stuff and you're and you're like, all that is noise, but there is usually a pause somewhere in there in anything that you do, and it that's where you find that kind of peace you're looking for, the moment of clarity, mm-hmm. the moment where you need to say, you know what, okay, I'm ready to make this decision, and that's so. Anyway, I love, I love, I love. That's my uh, that's my go to these days. That's great. Yeah, there has to be a podcast for that. I'm sure there is. <laughs> All right. Number three, something yeah. you didn't know you needed until you got it. Failure. Ooh. I failure. Like it. Tell me failure. more. Um I so we talked about earlier on, like I was able to persuade people at a very young age and that kind of stuff. So things kinda of came to me, yeah, somewhat easily. Probably about uh between, you know, two thousand sixteen and two thousand seventeen, I failed miserably at work. And it was more so along the lines that, you know, I was in a new market. I didn't know, you know, I wasn't producing as well as I had produced elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, men in particular, we identify our value at times by our work. And I was not called on the carpet, but I was told, like, look, we got you here for a reason in New York. We want you to do well. And, you know, you're not doing well. Like, what can we do? And for two years, I failed. And I failed in a way that wasn't, um, it was like everything I touched just went wrong. Mm. Everything I touched went wrong. Everything I touched went wrong. I had knots in my stomach. I had headaches. I had, you know, I would you know, wake up in the morning with cold sweats worrying about going to the office. And um, toward the end of, uh, beginning of 2018, um, I realized that I wasn't owning where I was. I wasn't owning that I was in New York. I wasn't owning the opportunity that I had. And I was constantly worried about what happened in the past. And so once I realized that I needed to move past that, 18 was just a banner year for me. 19 will be just as great, if not better. But failure, and I mean real failure, and people don't talk about their failures often. Right. Right? But real failure, real failure in the gut, where you question your intellect, you question your stamina, you question your value, those things can either break you or make you. Got a, a portrait on the on the wall. <laughs> you Martin know, Luther I, King. <laughs> the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, yeah. but where he stands at times of challenge. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I that's that's spot on. That's spot on. But but failure, failure. That type of failure, I never 
experienced before mm-hmm. and I have an appreciation for it today it's that mental toughness right there yeah to yeah. still maintain the calm yeah in the midst of uh, things going wrong and it's just and uh, you know we're having a moment here because now I'm thinking of all the all the things that you know have transpired and you know me talking about guys that were physically fit yep and me 145 pounds going okay I'm gonna get through this mm-hmm. and that common theme that thread is you know carried on today God is good life is good life is very good I think I got you in a moment there brother real talk man because <laughs> I don't have that portrait up on the wall right, for no reason for no yo reason. yeah yeah <laughs> things yeah. ain't all peachy so it resonated but with you as well I'm serious man yeah all right number four yep bucket list place to travel any place in the world that you have been to that you recommend the listeners add to their bucket list? That would be lazy. So yeah, everyone talks about, you know, Cape Town. I've been to Cape Town. But one place I would recommend, um, and only because I like it, is uh, Catalina Island. Catalina Island off the coast of uh, L.A. And the reason I like that place is because um, it's almost removed from, a lot of people talk about it, one, People on the West Coast talk about it a little bit. And even some of those folks, I, I, yeah, I would, I would, I would say that, um, they didn't like, they didn't know much about it. So I like it because you can do just about anything there. You can snorkel. You can, you know, I went parasailing for the first time. Um, you can lay out on the beach. You know, you can have any sort of relaxing uh, experience there. And and I loved everything about it. Um, because I'm a kind of a I like being on the water. I like the sun. That 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 gets me going. Sunlight, water, boat, you know, alcohol, I'm good. Yeah. Not a bad combination. No, not at all. Not at all. Is this its own county in California? Yeah, that's a good question. Or is this I don't part know. of like LA County? It might be or LA County. County. Yeah, it might be LA Orange County, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's about forty five minute boat ride from um Marina Del Rey. Okay. Number five, 50-mile detour restaurant. (laughs) You'd be willing to go 50 miles out of your way just to eat here. Well, given that I'm in New York often, um, it's 200 miles. (laughs) So every time I come home, there is a place uh, on uh, Florida called the Royal, the Droid Park. And I like it because it's a neighborhood restaurant. But... They're Michelin star. They have great fusion food. It's like Peruvian and Asian a little bit. Um, and I love a good cocktail. Like I love a good bourbon Manhattan. Anything, anything that's like you know is well you know, well made. And the staff there is just phenomenal. Um, you go there. You have. A, you can go there on a date. You can go there on a business meeting. You can go there for brunch. You can go there just to hang out and read a book, do some work. Um, it's not pretentious but the food is fantastic and no matter where you are on the spectrum of entertaining mm-hmm. you can go there and have a good time yeah it's really good what's that fourth street or is that i fifth? think that's that might be fifth yep fifth yeah so northwest corner of fifth and florida northwest yeah. uh right on the corner it has a really super cool vibe yes yeah. So I've I've actually eaten there myself. Yeah. And episode forty nine. Yeah. Larry Braithwaite. Yeah. He uh lives in Ladroit. Okay. And that was his fifty mile detour restaurant. <laughs> so I think this might be the first two time fifty mile detour restaurant. Re- recommendation. Yeah. yeah, recommendation. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So yeah. I didn't realize it was Michelin star. Yeah, I, I did not know that as well. I think I only knew that a week ago. Yeah, so and I've been there, been going there for at least a year plus. So now I got to make a detour to go yeah. there. <laughs> All right, home stretch. Yes, number six, your number one skill. This is your number one honed craft. Ah. Things you've worked at. <laughs> well, definitely persuasion. All right. Okay. <laughs> definitely persuasion. Um, I'm grateful for that gift. Um, oftentimes, I I hear friends tell me I should probably be a politician or do something along those lines. I was like, yeah, we'll see. But not, probably not, not, not at this point. Right. Story's far from over. Yeah. Right. Last but certainly not least, number seven, your number one talent. This is your innate proficiency. You were born with this. Mental toughness. There you go. I, I refuse to give up. And it is, 
yeah, you call it mental toughness, you can call it um, maybe perseverance is the proper definition, perseverance. So mental toughness and perseverance. And I get that from my mom. Hmm. I get that from my mom. My mom had a stroke uh, beginning of 2018. Whoa, I and didn't even know that. Yeah, no, she, she's, she's, she's a freaking... She's a freaking stallion. It was like, a, thank God it was a minor stroke. Yeah. She bounced back like it was, you know, she it's was nothing. like elastic. Like elastic. Like there's no holding her down. She's so like, she's so like A type personality. She was like on vacation, two weeks vacation. And she was like, by the middle of the second week, she's like, yeah, I'm ready to go back to work. I said, what? She's like, yeah, I'm going to go back to work tomorrow. She's like, I'm not sitting around this house doing nothing or just traveling around. And I was like, okay, mom. That's that ambition. That's that ambition. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly it works. You know, it's a it's a common thread in my family. Yeah. Ash, this episode has been amazing. Dude, this is so much fun for me. Like seriously. I am so honored that you asked me about oh, this. Man. I, I'm happy to do this with you. Do you have any contact info, social media, website, or Anything else you want to share with the listeners? You can always find me on LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah, that's probably the, the best, the best place. Do you want to drop the website for uh, MetLife? Uh, yeah, it's just uh, MetLife.com forward slash real estate. If you want to stay here, hey, look us up on the web, unionindc.com. At the bottom of that webpage, you'll see a nice little email where you can shoot me an email and say, hey, Fred, love the podcast. I'm coming there. Just give you the heads up. And I'll shoot you back with a smiley face and a big thumbs up. <laughs> and then when they come and they give me five and they see my big smile and a big thumbs up, they'll be like, I get it. You were communicating the emotion of the elation of my arrival at the end. There is character and purpose in all of this. And a guest That's my whole goal Got three Instagrams for you At Union in DC For the great pictures of the end At Guestbook Pod Where you can see Podcast guest cards For all the past guests that we've had And last certainly not least We got at Innkeeper Freddy That's Freddy with an I-E at the end Where you can see A day in the life of the innkeeper again ash thank you so much for coming and listeners i hope you've enjoyed this episode just as much as i have and we will see you next week and imagine the opening scene of a movie where, you know, there's fog, um, there's a swamp, and, you know, you're hearing, you know, birds chirping. You might see a crocodile float by every now and then. And um, these these lovely things called sand fleas. Okay. So, you know, Washington is pretty hot, right? Yeah. And muggy and sweaty. Yeah. So imagine having to stand still while one of those things are on your nose, on your cheek, on your lip, on the side of your mouth, on the back of your neck, while you're sweating. And all those things are biting you. And then the drill instructor goes, you better not touch that sand flea. You better not touch what God created.